All you got to do is open the door, step outside, and there you are. There you are? Yeah. There you are where? Outside. Well, suppose you want to get back in again. You had no right to go out. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 66, The Little We Know About Leonard. I'm Sean Connery, and joining me as usual is Noah Diamond. Noah, you've got some big news for us. I do, Matthew. The New York crew, my New York Marx Brothers crew, responsible for producing the original Marx Fest 10 years ago, which is something to consider, has decided uh, that we haven't fully learned our lesson and we're going to do it again this year, 2024. It just seemed like the perfect time to bring back the idea of a big Marx Brothers festival in New York City because this is the 100th anniversary of the original New York opening of I'll Say She Is, and it's the 110th anniversary of Home Again, uh, besides being the 10th anniversary of Marx Fest itself. So if you add all of that up and divide by a seven-cent nickel, you can figure out we're all a 1,000 years old. So this May in New York City, over two weekends, May 17th to the 19th in Manhattan, and May 24th to the 26th, at Coney Island, Brooklyn, we're going to have a something like 20 or 25 great Marx Brothers events for you. Uh, we're still confirming uh, events. Lots of things are, are still kind of in the planning stages, but we've announced five so far, five great events at our website, marxfest.org, including a conversation with comedy legend Robert Klein, an appearance by one of our most popular Marx Brothers Council podcast guests, John Tefteller, at which he'll be playing some rare Marx Brothers audio nobody has ever heard before, and the ultimate I'll Say She Is centennial experience, where not only will we explore the original production in more detail than we have before, but I will also be sharing more than I've shared before of the 2016 production. So that's just a little taste of what, as I say, more than 20 great Marx Brothers events in New York City in May. Tickets are not yet on sale, but when they are, they'll be at marxfest.org. We do have a crowdfunding campaign, which is currently active. As I record this, it's been active for less than a week, but we're more than halfway to our goal, $15,000 in the crowdfunding campaign to help defray the expenses of getting these wonderful guests to New York City and throwing the greatest festival in the history of human civilization. Uh, I have now told you everything that there is to say about Marx Fest so far. So uh, as the questions inevitably pour in, the answer to most of them will be, we're going to announce that soon. But in the months ahead, the picture will come into clearer focus. And Marx Brothers fans, I hope you can plan to be in New York this May. So just one more time with the email address that people can follow your progress. Uh, marxfest.org is the website. and you, Sorry, website address. Marxfest.org is the website. There's an email address, true, info at marxfest.org. That's the place to send all those questions that I don't yet have the answers to. <laughs> well, we devoted a podcast to Checo Marx um, with, with Travis D way back in the early days of the, of the Council podcast. But we're going to take another uh, look at Chico again now um, because I think he, he amply rewards the attention. Chico is in many ways, I think, the most mysterious of the brothers. Everything we know about him 
is second-hand. What we do know sounds fascinating and suggests that he could well have been the most interesting of them all. Yet he's the only one of the three main brothers to have left us no memoir and no major retrospective interview. A few scattered contemporary interview quotes uh, and Carl Crichton's biography, the Chico sections of which, though written in the third person, are the closest we'll get to a Chico version of Harpo Speaks, are all we have. Um, and there are so many Chico what-ifs. Um, this is the one that, that blows my mind the most. What if Groucho had died in the early 60s and Chico had been the lone survivor into the 70s. The trajectory of their career would have been unchanged and Groucho would still have had his success with You Bet Your Life, but it would have been Chico, not Groucho, that the world would have turned to when the great Marx revival happened at the end of the 60s. Or would it have happened? Was it simply because everyone suddenly remembered how great those movies were? Uh, Would it still have happened if all the brothers had been dead? Or was a huge part of it the fact that their dominating presence was still around and still, to some extent, recognisably that guy that you see in the movies? How might that dynamic have changed if we switch Chico for Groucho? Can we even imagine him chatting to Dick Cavett or reminiscing at Carnegie Hall? Well, there are just one or two very small hints of, of, uh, of what that might have been like. Um, for instance, there's a, there's a 1942 radio interview uh, of Chico when he's uh, starting out as a as a band leader uh, having finally uh, you know he, he thought said goodbye to the Marx Brothers as an act so he's in slightly uh, he's in slightly retrospective mood so that has something of the feel of a of a later uh, television interview if only such a thing existed uh, here's a small extract from that were your parents on the stage before you Chico no Tob but my mother's brother was Al Sheen of Gallagher and Sheen. You see, she loved the stage, and she wanted us to follow in the footsteps of our famous uncle. Well, she really got her waist, Chico. How did she go about it? Well, you see, Groucho always had a good place. You see, he sings pretty good yet. That is, when he cuts out his clowning. Which is kind of tough, I suppose. Oh, yeah, it's a pretty tough. And Harper taught himself to play the harp when he found an old harp in the attic left by my grandmother. Well, believe me, he plays that harp all right. What was the start of the act as we know it today, Chico? Well, Groucho, Harpo, and Zeppo were doing an act together at Waukegan, and my mother took me to see them. They didn't know I was coming. I hadn't been home in five years. Well, I can imagine that that was quite a reunion. No, it isn't what you think. He could have gone home. He just hadn't been home. Were they uh, surprised to see you, Chico? You bet they were. You see, I asked the orchestra leader to see that to let me play the piano for their act. They didn't know I was there. He was a tired violin player. Maybe you heard of him. Yeah, I think I know a tired violin player by the name of Ben Burney. (laughs) No, it's the other one, Jack Benny. (laughs) Well, I should have suspected when you mentioned Waukegan. Tell me, what happened when your brother spotted you out there in the orchestra? Well, you see, Harper saw me first. He had an orange under his hacks that he used in the act. So he took it out and hit me right on the head with it. I threw it back and hit Groucho. And the act broke up with us throwing things at each other. The audience thought it was all part of the act, and they hated us, and their fellas, they decided to put me in it. Well, I'm inclined to go right along with the audience, too. That gives us a good picture of the start of the Marx Brothers style of comedy. I always hate that when comedians say, you know, and there was there was somebody on the stage who, who uh, you know, and then they like, build up to the name. I mean, it obviously, you know, it worked well there because he got a huge laugh, but... 
there's something about it that always, you know, because I always see see it coming, you know, and there's just this this reference to something. All oh, right, he's gonna he's gonna make a punchline out of the person's name there. Artificial suspense, yes. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a later 1950s um, interview on British television, a program called uh, Showtime, I think. Which I think if you if you kind of squint. Uh, and put your fingers in your ears and wiggle them about could almost be uh, Chico at at Carnegie Hall. You know, a lot of people ask me, uh, are we really brothers and can Harpo talk? And How did you get your name? Is he going to make any more pictures? You know, Harpo can really talk. You don't think he can talk, just play golf with him and let him miss a putt that big. You'll hear him talk. (laughs) How we got our names is a very interesting thing. Uh, when we were kids in school, we used to wear a little bag that was around the neck, was called a grouch bag. In this bag, we would keep our pennies, our marbles, piece of candy, little marijuana, whatever we could pick up. <laughs> well, we were studying to be musicians. And uh, <laughs> Groucho got his name from the bag. Yeah. It was always full. Yeah. And a Harpo had a bag too, but he got rid of it. <laughs> My name, I got my name when I was about 15 years of age. I, I used to chase the chickens. I still chase them, but I don't catch them anymore. <laughs> and I'm just waiting for a rainy day. I'm good in the mud. <laughs> Could I say that during the last couple of days, I've enjoyed your company more than I can tell you. And those wonderful stories, I'd love you to tell the true story you told me about the little girl. Well, uh, right before I came to England, I went into a hotel. And a little girl, about three and a half years old, she came in with a baby carriage. Had a little doll in. You know how you get when you see a little baby. Oh, what a cute baby. She said, it's my baby. I said, yes, well, can I be an uncle? She says, no, she's got three uncles. I'm looking for a father. That's all right. <laughs> a brief extract there from uh, the best-selling LP, An Evening with Chico. Do you think he would still be doing the act if he was around then, or, or would he just would he just be himself? It's a good question. I, a lot of well, I say a lot of, but there aren't that many examples. But when we do get him in this kind of later in career interview mode, he he seems to be walking a middle ground already. Mm. You know, uh, the first clip that you played, he mostly seems to be doing it without the accent or with just a trace of the accent so you can't even quite tell if he's putting it on or if this really is his natural speech and then when the interviewer tries somewhat lamely to make a joke out of like how tough it is to get Groucho to be serious Chico's response to that when he goes into a little half-hearted comic bit is clearly in dialect he says yes it's a plenty tough you know and then Mm. he goes on talking more or less without the accent the other thing I wonder, of course, is everything we've got from him is um, adhering to the kind of uh, you know broadcasting standards of the of the forties and fifties, uh, and I wonder how liberated he would have been uh, in later years. What what an unrestricted Chico might have been like in the age of of Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor. Uh, I mean, you can just imagine him letting it all hang out with Richard and Nobley. <laughs> Maybe, but it, it's funny. In a way, it's harder to imagine. And I, I feel that even though this is sort of the opposite of who they really were, essentially, it feels like Chico 
in an interview context, was a more uptight guy than Groucho. Yeah, he comes across that way, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think it's because he had genuinely had more to hide, you know? Like, Chico actually was this kind of libertine, this barbarian. And so whenever there was a camera pointed at him, he was almost pretentious at times, you know? In fact, these interviews, he's being a little more the avuncular entertainer. But in some of the early press interviews that we've looked at from the vaudeville and Broadway years... When every once in a while you'd get Chico quoted by a reporter. Sometimes he was surprisingly pretentious about comedy. He was very, mm. you know, speaking theoretically, um, a lot of $10 words. Whereas Groucho, because the person he truly was, was this kind of restrained Victorian, you know, <laughs> kind of uptight, clean cut guy. Uh, but his trademark was to be just the opposite in terms of his comic persona. Chico very well might have just um, played the the milk toast with an Anoboli. Hmm. Well, we could go on playing these these what if games forever. That's that's very much my point. Uh, Chico is the brother that we have to imagine off screen, stitching together bits and pieces of other people's reminiscences to approximate the real man. What seems to me by far the best and most invaluable single source for we would-be Frankensteins is the book Growing Up with Chico, written in 1980 by his daughter Maxine. It's a short book and an informal one, but it really does impart a flavour of the man and also of his wife Betty, of Minnie and Frenchie, of the other brothers, and of its author, who who comes across as astute, sensitive, uh, feisty, and very intelligent. Um, before moving on to, to, uh, to Chico and the book, actually, I think we probably should say a word or two about Maxine, because she does seem to have been uh, quite a formidable character in her own right, doesn't she? Yeah, she certainly does seem to have been. And uh, lots of people, you know, even separate from Marx Brothers circles, a lot of people, because she was a casting director, a casting agent in New York City for many years, and a lot of people in New York acting circles have memories of her. Um, And sometimes when you mention the Marx Brothers in certain New York art circles, the first response you'll get is, oh, I had some run-ins with Maxine in in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, so yes, that's all true. I I can't quite say that I really met Maxine, but I was in the same room with her once when I was 15 and saw Animal Crackers at uh, the Goodspeed Opera House. She was in attendance uh, that performance. She was with two young men who I would later come to understand were Paul Wesolowski and Robert Bader. Um, and we had a little moment waving at her and sort of had a hello brief hello moment. That lady understood that those children understood that she was Chico Marx's daughter. And in later years, I was talking once to Paul Wesolowski, and I said, well, I didn't really meet her. I didn't really get to talk to her, but, you know, she seemed lovely. And Paul broke into a snorting laugh and said, I've never heard her described that way before. Yeah, lots of lots of people have got have got their their little Maxine anecdote, haven't they? They say, "Oh yes." Very often as well, people say, um, "You know, I'd been talking to her for some time before I realised who she was." You know, she she wasn't kind of I'm Chico's daughter, but she was quite the opposite, and and it kind of dawned on them, and they said, "Hang on a minute, are you are you are you Chico's daughter?" Lots of people seem to have memories like that. 
Yeah, a lot of people uh, have said that she had the same kind of crooked smile that he had. People saw something in her smile that was very suggestive of Chico. And she does seem to have been a um, somewhat sardonic, sarcastic, humorous person who didn't suffer fools gladly. um, Yeah, was able to marshal humor as a weapon when she needed to. Also, a lot of the a lot of the people who have talked to me and us about her, including on this podcast, met her in situations where she was the powerful person in the room, you know, casting them, deciding whether to give them a job or not. So uh, uh, Don Scardino, when we had him on, he talked about feeling too intimidated to ask her about Chico Marx. And yes, uh, I think Jerry Soroka had a. a similar story and but he was perhaps slightly more daring and uh, imitated Chico right to her but yeah it followed her around and uh, and she was a, quite a presence i think of, of all the marks children the one she reminds me of most is is Groucho's daughter miriam um both both uh, quite quite sort of uh bookish um erudite uh, and uh, as you say uh you know did, didn't suffer fools uh, too easily yeah, they do seem similar. Uh, salty, uh, caustic, D- mm. Dorothy Parker-esque. Yes. <laughs> um, well, and I want to ask you, before we sort of dive into the book, um, what what you thought of it and, and what your kind of history with it has been. I mean, I, I think I read it when I bought it, which was in the late 1980s. And then I read it again 10 years ago when I was writing The Annotated Marx Brothers, when I basically read all the books in one huge marathon um this is i think this is the first time in in kind of reflective adulthood that i've settled down with with this book and this book alone um and it and it really came alive to me i i think it's 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 quite a you know a very fine piece of work i thought I felt that way too, and I was uh, somewhat surprised to feel that way. Very similar history with the book uh, to yours. You know, I f- read the book from cover to cover when I was 13 years old or something and was first getting immersed in this world. And maybe I revisited it once at some point over the years, but for the most part, after that initial reading, as we've said about so many of these books, we said this about Groucho and me just a few episodes ago, I treated it like a reference book where I would go to it to look something up, you know, to find some specific thing. Oh, I need to know what how Maxine tells this particular anecdote, you know. Um, the the sections dealing with Alsatias, I tend to have reread more and more recently for obvious research reasons. But yeah, until reading it for this episode, I'm not sure I really sat down and experienced this book as a single work beginning to end since I, you know, since I was basically a child. And it's very interesting to read it. Some of my impressions and memories were, were wrong, um, or else I had absorbed other people's opinions about the book and lost track of my own impressions. I had the idea that the book was sort of a box-checking exercise, that Maxine felt there really needs to be a book about Chico. At that time, there were several Groucho books. There was one Harpo book. Um, And Maxine seems to have felt like it was her responsibility to just put a book on the shelf that was about Chico Marx. I do think that was important to her. But 
because of looking at the book through that prism, I sort of thought that that was basically the beginning and end of what the book accomplishes, that it was a kind of sanitized, rose-colored, I love daddy view of somebody whose complexity was not going to be sufficiently explored by this particular author. Uh, and that I had kind of put it in the same category as we put a lot of the PR fluff that we hear about the Marx Brothers. Like, well, that's a take, but it's a an ideological take, you know. Reading the book now, though, I find, yeah, there is some of that. She's protective of Chico in some ways, and she argues, she advocates for him in ways that other authors don't, but not without justification. And she also seems to me to have a pretty sober and clear-eyed view of who her father was, including um, all the unsavory things, all the disappointing and frustrating things about who he was. She says in a fairly uh, stunning sentence late in the book, she says, Chico was a singularly selfish man. Um, she's able to say those things about her father. And uh, I was impressed with her candor. I also think we should say, um, apparently, her son, uh, Brian Culhane, is the co-author of this book, um, as much as Roland Barber is, is Harpo's uh, co-author and, and Robert Bader is Susan Marx's co-author. Uh, he apparently, um, Brian Culhane, grandson of Chico, had much to do with shaping the text. Uh, nevertheless, it, it is convincingly her voice and a lot of the insights in it seem like they would have to have come directly from Maxine. Yes, some of it, I think, is surprisingly, um, surprisingly penetrating. I, I think she uh, she's very astute. She's got a very good kind of way of 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 looking back at at things that she uh, perceived at the time uh, immaturely because she was a child and a young person. And kind of reconsidering them uh, and casting them in a new and saying, you know, well, now when I look back on it, I can see it's it's this. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's far from just a, just, a, you know, a trundle through some anecdotes. I, I think she, she really has gone through a kind of um, a soul searching exercise to to get her her thoughts down on on the page uh and right away i think from the very first pages you can see that there is um kind of an original uh sort of take on on things you know she's she's starts off you know instantly uh questioning some of the commonplaces um I think the the third sentence uh, she's talking about Frenchie and she says uh, but he was more than the handsome schlemiel that his sons later made him out to be um uh, she talks a, a, on the first page about um uh, Shelley Winters in in um, Minnie's Boys saying that that was a a very good uh, interpretation of of Minnie which is again is not something you you see uh much of elsewhere um and she tells us that that uh Chico was possessed less of an underlying coldness than his four brothers. He was, as Harpo once said, easily, if not deeply, moved. And throughout the book, we, we you know, we find her saying, uh, you know, the, these, these interesting, making these interesting observations, particularly, I think, about um, the, the other Marx brothers. I mean, her, her portrait of, of the, uh, the rather sour Groucho is one that we're uh, very familiar with from from other people's accounts, but I think this is pretty much the only book, isn't it, that gives us uh, at least two, arguably three, uh, negative Harpo anecdotes that 
I must say, strike me as a welcome corrective to the the kind of Saint Harpo that that we get everywhere else. Yes, indeed, and and in those anecdotes and elsewhere too in the book, um, Maxine more than more than Arthur Marks in his book, um, she really makes me stop and think. Uh, oh. What a thing it was to have been a child in the middle of this whirlwind. I mean, this yeah. whirlwind that we think of as the Marx Brothers. Now, by the time Bill Marx, his book comes along, um, it's a little bit after this this period. You know, um, Miriam and Arthur and Maxine had this um, experience with the Marx Brothers in the twenties and at the end of their vaudeville era, um, when things were just completely wild. And you do realize. It was not always a very wholesome place to grow up. Uh, even the title makes me, yeah, like, I feel differently about now, like Growing Up with Chico. I used to think, ah, oh, what an all-purpose title that is, to write a, a, a book about your showbiz parent and call it Growing Up with Big Star's name here. But no, Growing Up with Chico is, mm. really had a lot to do with how this human being turned out. The One of the negative Harpo stories that you mentioned um, – is a fairly disturbing incident in which Harpo kind of uses Maxine. She's a very young child. He kind of uses her to help pick up this woman and then fool around with her on the plane uh, with Maxine right there. And, you know, it's like a kind of horrible story. Um, And it's, you know, it's disappointing and all that. Um, And Maxine's, uh, perspective on it is so mature and so kind of tinged with sadness, but wisdom. She says, if I had told my friends about this, they probably would have thought, well, that's the Marx Brothers for you, as if they were describing some natural phenomenon, like a volcanic eruption that could be observed but never controlled. And you realize, oh, she grew up in an atmosphere where the adults could get away with anything. The adults ha- mm. had carte blanche to do whatever they felt like doing. Um, and in her case, anyway, the child was left to just kind of wonder and try to learn about life through this particular scene. And she describes the kind of uh, halting reluctance of her own sexual development later. You think, well, of course. I mean, of course. Mm. Is it the, the daughter of the Marx Brothers grew up feeling not entirely sure about men? Yeah, okay, I, I could buy that. And it is a strange that throughout you do get that strange sense, don't you, of of the of the the, the two um, generations being being reversed. She she says at one point about how she and her friends uh, didn't drink much, didn't take drugs, didn't have sex, uh, and had a kind of a quite a puritanical sort of attitude to life. And it was the, the you know the, the parental generation that that were the, the lawless ones. Yeah, I mean, among other, I, some I have some reactions to that that are probably <laughs> one could call clinical, but another one is just that's show business. Mm. So let's okay, let's let's sort of um, go through the book from the, from the top. So so at first we have the 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 you know the, the family prehistory, as it were, the the Minnie and Frenchie stuff, which which obviously we're we're familiar with. Uh, she she whisks through that in in about a page and a half. Uh, but then we get on to um, Chico's childhood, uh, and it's and it's these sections I think that that make make us ache most for 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 a Chico memoir because it's obvious that she's just dipping a toe into what 
she was exposed to growing up, which is a vast reservoir of anecdotes as good as anything in Harpo Speaks. Yeah, absolutely. That is the impression. Uh, one thing that's nice about this section, though, is to read it and discover it is not just a retread of what we've already read. You know, she didn't just read the existing books. Mm. Um, this actually does seem to be truly received, you know, anecdotal stuff that she remembers being told. And uh, that obviously has a lot more value. I love the story about him um, stealing all that toilet paper. Is that is that in anything else? I didn't remember yeah. that. Groucho tells that story, but he tells it a little differently. Um, Groucho identifies the paper company as Clauberhorn. Um, and uh, that's on the um, Evening with Groucho LP and other places. But it's interesting to hear the, that story. Lots of Chico anecdotes that are familiar, but we've never heard them told you know, basically from Chico's point of view or from a pro-Chico, mm. <laughs> from a pro-Chico source. There's a few things actually, isn't there, in, in there that we get a slightly different take on. Um, I, I was quite, towards the end of the book, she um, says quite surprisingly that um, that, that Margaret Dumont um, kind of hooked up with her for an evening and, and, yeah. they, and they had a... You know, they had spent some time together, and and she says there that. Uh, hang, on, let me find it. Page hundred and fifty-one. The boys ruined my career. She has too much say. Yes, and and uh, and Maxine says um, the boys could never break her up because she never thought they were funny, which is a slightly different and more you know more more believable version of she didn't get the jokes. It's she didn't like the jokes. Yeah. Yes, but, and Maxine says of Dumont, uh, she never realized what a great foil she had been and how much she had contributed to their movies. She was notorious for being without sense of humor. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it jibes very well with what we were told about Dumont before, but it's not the way we see Dumont now, and it's not how we now understand her. Mm. Um, it's interesting. It's like a, either Maxine's seemingly generally sharp analytical eye was just off when it came to Margaret Dumont and Maxine is kind of accepting the legend or, you know, we know it's true that Margaret Dumont played that role in life as well. You know, I mean, it wasn't like Groucho said she was just like her character and everyone believed him. And there was no reason to believe that she did present that image, you know, Anyway, yes, it is an interesting moment, and it's a case where we, we can sort of catch Maxine in, like, not being quite as savvy as we as she would be now. So back to, to Chico the Child, um, we, we get, uh, obviously, the, all the expected stuff about him uh, not being able to keep his, his, his pay packet. For, for as long as it takes to, to get from from his place of work to his house and always, uh, you know, dropping into the pool room and all that sort of thing. Um, but we get some other interesting stuff too. We um, we learned that, that uh, he worked for a long time, or for a time rather, um, with a circus troupe. She tells us that he worked as a wrestler and a boxer for a time. Um, and she also gives us some interesting stuff about... Um, uh, his his uh, early act, Marks Marks and uh, and Gordon, or, or Marks and and Gordoni, as she says it, it um, 
it, it evolved into. And, and she has him doing his Italian patter act uh, from starting from from here. So she, we have a, a pre a pre Marx Brothers origin of of the of the Italian act. Is that is that all accurate? It's- yeah, that all seems to be true, and um, it's laid out in. Uh- in some detail in uh, Four of the Three Musketeers, Robert Bader's book, there's a, um, that Marx and Gordon period is interesting, and it, it became Marx and Gordoni when uh, many suggested that uh, a, a European-sounding name would do them a little better. There was also an existing act called Gordon and Marx, the two hilarious Germans or something like that. And uh, Chico and, and Arthur Gordon apparently didn't mind the possible confusion that might result from these two names. Uh, Maxine specifically says that during the Arthur Gordon years, Chico developed one of his later trademarks, the Tootsie Fritzy ice cream banter, which is interesting. I'm not sure that tidbit appears anywhere else. Certainly, I wasn't aware or haven't thought of that phrase or bit appearing anywhere outside of Day at the Mm. Races. So that is interesting. Uh, maybe this is explored in another book, and I'm and it's fallen through one of the holes in my head. But uh, but it seemed strange to me. Also in this section, I thought it was interesting um, in what she says about Chico's musical development. She says uh, his talent was pretty special. He could sight read any piece of music and immediately transpose it into the key of C. Very interesting. And I've always wondered about this. What was Chico's level of musical literacy? Um, I mean, we know because it's been documented and explained in in interesting detail by Bill Marx and others that Harpo was not musically literate. He was an intuitive musician who played by ear, but musical notation was a foreign language to him. Uh, I've always wondered about Chico. Could he read music or not? None of the descriptions of his piano lessons seem to seemed to suggest that those lessons were very heavy on music theory, you know, and and the sense of Chico is that he just was intuitive and natural and effortless and sat down at the piano and just instinctively understood how it all worked. And we know that music theory is largely math, and we know that Chico had the mind of a brilliant mathematician. Uh, so it does make sense that being able to transpose in his head and and understanding musical notation on an advanced level would would be a natural thing for him. But because he was never interviewed in detail about music, and we don't have his firsthand thoughts about any of this, um, in a way, his musicianship, other than as a performer, is completely unexplored. So I was interested to see this. Okay, Chico could read music. He could sight-read any piece of music and transpose it into the key of C without thinking about it. That's pretty amazing. And she also... uh at the other end of the book, uh, tells us that story about him uh, looking at a at a dollar bill and memorizing the serial number and being able to say it forwards and backwards uh, and and saying that if you come back to me in a year, I'll still be able to tell you. I mean that I've, I have no doubt that that is true, but it, yeah. it but it points it points to um, uh, you know a, a freakish kind of talent, doesn't it? Almost something diagnosable, I think, in in modern terms. Yeah, he was, and in a way, all these guys they were sort of superheroes. They had powers. 
also uh, what, going back to what you were saying about the the, the, the Tootsie Fritzy thing. There's there's a, a quite a few occasions in the book where she gives the impression of 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 having uh, you know imparting quite significant sort of little little tidbits of knowledge, but but not in a knowing way. So 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 you you don't ever kind of suspect that maybe she's she's making that up because she doesn't seem to be aware of it herself. Like for instance, uh, the the joke that that eventually turns up in um, Duck Soup tanks your welcome uh she has as a as a running joke um of of hers um much earlier so it's almost like that was kind of remembered and and put in almost to sort of please her is the kind of the the feeling you get isn't it yeah absolutely right you also realize that to her the the work of the marx brothers is a sidebar you know to us the lives of the marx brothers are a sidebar like it feels to me like the Marx Brothers, their films, their characters, their work is so vivid. That feels like the real world. And then on the margins of that, as fans and followers and researchers, every now and then we get this glimpse of like, oh my God, they were real people too. They walked the earth, you know, they had lives mm. and concerns. For for someone like Maxine, who grew up in the middle of the whirlwind, it was just the opposite. Oh yeah, these very vivid real people who I see every day also have this body of work. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, both that the tanks joke would have lived on in Groucho's mind as a way of joking around with his, you know, nieces and nephews and children. And that to Maxine, like every moment spent with these guys in real life, of course, was more memorable than whatever it was they did at work. So as we uh, as we move into to uh, to Chico then being being a Marx brother, uh, we get um, the the, uh, the first uh, most striking example of the of the advocacy that, that that you mentioned. And it's worth quoting in full, I think, because it, it's uh, it does kind of leap off the page. She says, um, "My father's true contribution to the act has never been fully realised because it hasn't been admitted." In his later years, Groucho would give Chico's efforts some due, but he did it with such a faint voice that no one heard. Yes, he would agree, if it hadn't been for Chico's insistence that they could be stars, they would never have gone anywhere. But Groucho didn't go on to say that they became a better act as a result of Chico's unwavering faith. The Marx Brothers were simply vaudevillians, albeit talented ones, like hundreds of others when they started in the business. Their artistry would not have blossomed were it not for my father's optimism. Groucho's black and envious moods certainly didn't help them to be great clowns, nor did Harpo's complacence, naivety and inner security. Chico struck the happy medium and ran with it all over town, buttonholing any bookers and producers who would pay him notice. He was a wonderful salesman, becoming so enthusiastic that he carried other people along. So, yeah, so so there we, we you know, we, we clearly see the, you know, the case for Chico being being made. This is one place where I feel Maxine overcorrects slightly. She's making many valid points here, and it's certainly undeniable that offstage, Chico's role as a sort of booster and, um, you know, cheerleader, as well as manager and business leader of the team, was very important in advancing their career and making breakthroughs happen for them, such as the breakthrough when they get to Broadway or when they start working with Irving Thalberg. But I think she goes a little too far and maybe gives Chico a little more credit than he deserves when she says, as you just quoted, their artistry would not have blossomed were it not for my father's optimism. 
now we're talking about their artistry, you know, not their success climbing the ladder of showbiz, but their artistry. Groucho's black and envious moods certainly didn't help them to be great clowns, nor did Harpo's complacency, naivete, and inner security. Well, come on then. Of course, all of their personality traits helped them become great clowns. And, you know, if Groucho hadn't had these black and envious moods, he wouldn't have been the wit that he was. He wouldn't have had the sense of humor and the attitude that he had. Harpo's naivete and inner security also obviously are one of the wellsprings of his specific humor and persona. So this, there is here, I think, a little maybe an extra drop of I love daddy uh, that, that, <laughs> that we don't necessarily need. Um, however, her, her point about his, his importance to their advancement is inarguable. I'm running in tandem with, with this. Obviously, we then get the, the beginnings of the Chico and Betty story uh which is sketched in i think with with a really a really nice touch i think it's it's very very um interestingly developed and i think again her insights are very keen um it's it's all stuff that was new to me um i I love the idea of him um picking up girls by standing in front of the poster that he's on that that seems absolutely chico doesn't it three shooting yes (laughs) Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's very interesting because it, it, to some extent, you know, it, it, Chico's marriage is mysterious in that he was seemingly the least likely person to get married, uh, of, of the brothers. And yet he was, he was the first, uh, that it was, uh, apart from, from Harpo's, I, I guess the, the longest lasting Mark's marriage numerically at least, although obviously not a, not a, a, a largely, um, happy one. Uh, but but you you sort of get the feeling when she describes their their marriage that it that it almost worked um, that that they were well matched um, that that unlike Groucho's marriages which seem to have been sort of on life support from the start you you really get the feeling that if if they if he could have just just turned the dial a little uh, this actually would have been a great a great love match she seemed to have to have understood him she obviously idolized him. Uh, and and they seem to be on the same wavelength. Yes, it's an interesting view. I think a lot of the accounts of Chico's life that we read from other sources, particularly other sources in the family, are so hard on Chico, or or let's just say so concerned with pointing out the ways in which he was not a good husband, not a good partner, not a responsible brother or team member. Um, that Betty winds up being painted as just the victim, just poor Betty who had to deal with Chico in all these various ways. But in Maxine's account, Maxine, of course, who knew her mother better than any other person who wrote about them, in Maxine's account, what really comes across is that Betty was a powerful, formidable figure in her own right who had genuine power over Chico. Um, She probably didn't have the power to keep him from you know, being unfaithful. She didn't have the power to um, cure his gambling addiction, which, as Maxine is quick to point out, was an addiction. It was a sickness. It wasn't an easy thing to just stop. But she makes it clear that Betty was, for one thing, funny, for another thing, tough, 
that people didn't mess with Betty. Betty wasn't intimidated by the other Marx brothers, which is really saying something. Betty was Mm. left on her own, pregnant with Maxine in the bitterest Chicago winter with only Minnie Marx, a fairly indifferent Minnie Marx there to see her through the pregnancy. You know, Betty was really tough and and, uh, really uh, made of, of solid stuff. I also thought it was fascinating to hear Maxine talk about Betty's appropriation of the Greenbaum warning. We all know that uh, in Chicago, the Marx Brothers landlord was named Greenbaum and that when the Marx Brothers onstage antics were threatening to derail the act and compromise its success or infuriate the vaudeville managers, many would hiss at them from the wings, Greenbaum, to remind them that the family's uh, livelihood was dependent on their work and uh, they had to keep in line so that the rent could be paid. Well, Maxine writes, years later, Chico would pull himself away from a losing streak when one of Betty's well-placed green bombs cleared his gambling-fogged mind. Wow. Betty knew to step into the voice of Chico's mother and say the thing that his mother had said to get him to stop fooling around on stage. I mean, in addition to the many... Freudian implications here. Um, it really says something about what Betty knew and what she was capable of doing in her effort to keep this thing on the rails. Which also uh, brings me to, to another point, which again uh, just hadn't occurred to me, hadn't struck me as significant until um, until Maxine says so here, which is which is that Betty was Jewish. Uh, and the other Marx wives uh, weren't. And she says, um, Chico didn't have the antipathy toward Jewish women that his brothers Harper and Groucho showed. Betty was just the type of Jewish girl they shied away from. Bossy and abrasive, she knew exactly what she wanted and wasn't afraid to tell you so. Chico admired her guts, while his brothers preferred docile shiksas. Yeah, really interesting and not a point that, although the point has been hanging there for anyone to take and talk about, I don't think anyone else has talked about this. It's one of those times when it seems like Jewish, although Jewish is the specific thing we're talking about here because these are Jewish people. In a way, the word Jewish and the idea of Jewishness here, it's like a stand-in for the idea of authenticity, you know, of like unregulated emotion um, and a kind of earthy, instinctual way of living, um, a, an unconcern with appearances and a meeting of one's animal needs that is unapologetic. So we have their we have their whirlwind romance, and we have their their kind of spur of the moment um, marriage, and we're told um, that Groucho was so offended that he wasn't invited that he didn't invite them to his wedding three years later, which is you, you would think if anything would cause a permanent rift. I mean, that, that's an extraordinarily petty thing to do, bearing in mind that nobody was invited, that it was, you know, miles away, and they just they thought, what the hell, let's get married. To, to carry that grudge to that extent, um, that's, that's actually one of the, one of the shittiest things <laughs> I've, I, I've heard about Croucher, actually, and obviously there, there are plenty, but that's quite something, isn't it? It really is, yeah. And it's, it seems like maybe Chico was... Um, some of Groucho's, as you say, shittiest <laughs> moves in this area do seem to have 
been reserved for Chico. Um, you know, naming the dog Chico, that's a story told elsewhere that Maxine also tells. Um, it seems like Groucho's frustration with Chico was extremely high. And Groucho was, you know, more frustrated in general than the others. And yeah, he's hard on Chico. I, I had a, many times reading Maxine's book over the last week, I've thought that you know, on the podcast and in a lot of what we say and write about the Marx Brothers, I think that we sometimes feel like acting as a corrective to the idea, sometimes excessively expressed, that Groucho Marx was some kind of abusive monster, you know, that he was horrible and he was uh, abusive and tormented the people close to him. And we have often said, well, it's easy to go too far with this. He was a complicated man. He had bad moments, but he was a very decent man. He was not usually malicious. He was, you know, that's all true. But uh, but reading Maxine's book, and there's other things you can read that make you think about this too, you think, all right, Groucho, boy, on a bad day, he was not a nice man. And he could be particularly cold to the people close to him. Yeah. Later on, she says, which I think is also interesting, uh, I wouldn't learn till I was about 10 that Groucho could be loving and dear only with children. With adults, he always feared rejection and developed a steel exterior, which, with his cruel wit, often made him a sneering, bullying figure. Daddy used to say that Groucho would insult a king to make a beggar laugh. He would insult the beggar too, if my experience was any judge. Throughout my childhood, I was hungry for attention and a kind word, but Uncle Groucho's loving ways were abruptly withdrawn when I reached adolescence. Yeah, interesting point. And it seems true. I feel like this is a point that has been touched on elsewhere, although perhaps not as vividly as it is here in Maxine's book. The idea that Groucho had this openness and tenderness with children that wasn't available to him in his dealings with adults. Um, and we also have uh, when she's she's talking about Betty being being uh, you know more forthright than than the other Marx brothers uh, tended to, to like in a woman and, and them having a having a meeting with with Chico to to to, to for him to tell her to tone it down a bit. Um, we also have uh, her saying that it was it was Betty that told Groucho uh, that he didn't look good with a real moustache, so he so he shaved it off. Now I, I'm wondering does the does the time period here coincide with those two or three photos we have of Groucho with a real moustache when he's younger, looking, I always think, rather Turkish. Yes. I think he should have, he should have a fez on. Uh, do, does that coincide with this story? So is that, in fact, um, do we probably have Betty to thank for the process that ended up with the grease paint moustache? Yeah, I, I, yes, absolutely. This occurred to me when reading, and it's entirely possible, I think, what you're saying. I, I think it's a, it's not quite possible from Maxine's text to put an exact year on the anecdote where she talks about this. I also think there's more than one time when we catch Groucho, a young Groucho with a real mustache. There's some photographs from about 1925 that are like that. And I think there's also uh, earlier in the 20s, maybe 20 or 21, there are a couple of photos of him with a real mustache. So it, he seems to have experimented with it more <laughs> than once. But but yes, it's entirely possible that Betty is responsible for that aspect of Groucho's look. Um, we get some interesting stuff as well about Betty being in the act um, with them, uh, which is all all good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, there seems to have been almost a pragmatic decision, like being in the act 
is a way to keep an eye on Chico. Um, much the way Minnie put Zeppo in the act in order to keep an eye on him. And it seems like with the Marx Brothers Comedy Act being the family business for this group of um, kind of wild people who are hard to corral and keep tabs on, any one of whom left to his own devices might well destroy the world. Um, you know, the act was almost like a playpen, a place where you could just put all of these problem children and, and keep tabs on them. It's really, uh, Maxine I, is, I guess, the the source for that incredible line of minis that pops up in some of the other books when they're planning their trip to London, their first British tour um, in 1922, I think it is. And originally they were planning not to bring Minnie with them to England. And she writes them this, what Maxine calls a hurt and angry note, in which Minnie says, I am a maker of men. And everything you are, you owe to me. And there was a clap of lightning and thunder, and the sky darkened, and the seas parted. My God, this is like Oppenheimer. I am become death, you know. This is so dramatic for Minnie to put it that way, but okay. So then uh, Maxine uh, comes along, and uh, we are told a couple of interesting things about her uh, her arrival. We're told that uh, she was named after the actress Maxine Elliott. So that means that the the first the first M named child uh, was, was only incidentally or coincidentally uh, named in honor of of Minnie. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I noticed that too, and had the same thought. Uh, right. So, did the mini thing have anything to do with it or not? It seems like Maxine would have said that if it was part of her thinking about it. But she must mm. have realized that all her cousins, all her female cousins, had M names also. And uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And we're also told that the the next day. Um, Chico uh, tossed a coin to see uh, who would be the godfather uh, and Gummo uh, came out as, as, as the winner, uh, which is very interesting because, as, as you know, we discovered a few years ago that on her, her birth certificate, she was actually uh, called Maxine Gummo. Yeah. So that seems to be, uh, you know, the, the origin of that, of that stupid quixotic gesture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at last. <laughs> I agree with you, and it is puzzling and, and quixotic. Gummo is puzzling and enigmatic, if not quixotic, in, uh, in Maxine's account. She has very little to say about him, and she even says after he quit the act, she hardly ever saw him again. Uh, and yet she does mention a detail about Gummo that I don't think we've encountered somewhere else. She says at family reunions, I would hear his big, wheezy laugh. Mm. But, oh, that's interesting. That's like a detail a child would notice and would remember. Yes. Hit, that Gummo had a big, wheezy laugh. I haven't heard that anywhere else. So then we move into uh, the the kind of I think what most people would would find the most interesting section of the book, which is kind of home life uh, with uh, Maxine and Chico and and Betty, and obviously some some often unpleasant but always astute observations about how that how that marriage progressed and how it was perceived by by a child um, living with them. And I think an, an even-handedness. I mean, she she's very frank 
in saying that growing up, uh, she would always take Chico's side uh, and was very, very hard on her mother. So she acknowledges that she did that. And she also says, now looking back, I can see that, you know, that it, it wasn't really like that. But we also get just lots of just lots of interesting stories about about what it was like to to uh, to grow up with, with with Chico for a father. There was a there's a, a lovely piece, for instance, about when um, Chico called her over to watch some ants who had a dead grasshopper. Yeah, and she says we we looked on for an hour as the ants struggled in slow motion with their feast. This was the side of him that I loved best, his ability to meet me on my own ground without a note of condescension. As we talked about the difficulties of ant life, his eyes shined with the excitement of the moment. He convinced me that this was the most thrilling hour he had ever spent. That was Chico's way and his great attraction. His life consisted of an endless series of intense flashes. Lovely yeah. observation, lovely writing. Yes, uh, just wonderful and beautiful. And that really gives you a, uh, a picture, a beautiful picture of Chico um, as this man just excited to watch ants lay siege to a dead grass- grasshopper with his daughter. <laughs> and it also touches on his fascination with animals, which we have heard about elsewhere. And it's one of those keys to Chico's personality, it seems. Um, she also says uh, later in the book... Um, Chico was fascinated by wild animals and read incessantly about them. One of the high points of his youth had been to meet the man who had brought the first gorilla in captivity to America. When Chico died, he left my sons his collection of animal books. Uh, Yeah, it's just really interesting and lovely, and it gives you a sense of, as she keeps describing Chico, Chico as a seductive person, as just a person who made life seem like more fun. She also says, and this seems like such a perceptive statement, in comparing Harpo and Chico, she says, a few minutes with Harpo had you convinced that he was the most wonderful person in the world. The same amount of time spent with Daddy had you convinced that you were the most wonderful person in the world. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because we because we are so used to this idea of him as somebody who spent, you know, d- literally days on end without sleep in 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 card games and and you know would would stay out all night and was uh, sexually voracious. Um, that you tend to to assume that he he has kind of a, a Harpo degree of literacy and curiosity about the wider world um but but you know it would seem it would seem not i mean it's 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 incredible that this person who would literally uh, you know hawk his furniture to to pay off debts would have a collection of animal books yeah she's not she's not talking about him you know watching watching uh the national geographic television documentaries or or you know read reading about animals in a newspaper she's saying he had a collection of animal books yeah, it just seems so rich. I mean, you can run the risk of doing too much armchair psychoanalysis, you know, based on one little piece of information. But Chico Marx's fascination with wild animals, I mean, to the point where he, yes, kept and owned books about them and studied them. There's an anecdote we've we've discussed before about them being in London, going to the London Zoo and just being you know, hungry to talk to zoologists and ask them questions yes. about animals. 
that seemed to you know i mean it, it's tempting to say that it uh he felt maybe that he could learn to understand himself better and his own you know urge driven animalistic sort of existence you know by by studying um animals their unselfconsciousness and their you know simple kind of need meeting daily lives who knows but it's certainly fascinating and there's that lovely photo, isn't there, which I think is in, in London, isn't it, of him uh, sort of cradling a badger yeah. with with a look of, you know, undisguised joy on his yeah. face. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the badger went to the pool with Admiral Byrd. <laughs> so in, just in, in general, then, what did you have any, any other thoughts about what she tells us about uh you know the family life and particularly about the dynamics of the marriage and the dynamics of of the the, the parents and and the child um gee i guess it's um it's it's all things that uh, that we have touched on but it's mostly it's that one one thing that i certainly have come away with is maxine wrote a far more candid and insightful and honest book than i remembered um, and that is really something to something to have learned here. Um, this is this book is not a puff piece. It's not as defensive a book as I remembered, although it is defensive in some ways. Um, and then on top of it, that even the ways in which it is defensive and sort of adoring, uh, it's defensive and adoring uh, in a very intelligent, well-informed, careful and generally well-justified way. Sometimes she advocates for Chico's importance to the act in ways that seem very legitimate to me and insufficiently explored by successive writers and thinkers. Uh, she tells a story about Chico going to her school to speak at a, at a school assembly. And she says, I couldn't wait for my schoolmates to fall in love with him. He was sensational, playing a lot of his repertoire and joking with the students. Then Maxine goes on to offer this reflection. Chico was the only one of the brothers who had a good solo act. Harpo couldn't talk, and Groucho's humor didn't fit into a monologue routine. He always needed to work off somebody. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> nobody's ever mm. said this anywhere before because there is no Chico solo act for us to really look at and study and, and form this opinion. But yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, we know that we've had a lot of discussions about the complications of Groucho trying to entertain audiences all by himself on stage toward the end of his career. Um, Harpo, obviously. So yeah, Chico, who could talk, he was a talking comedian, perfectly capable of anecdotes and storytelling, not exactly in Groucho's style, but you know, he was as capable of those things as Groucho was. And he could sit down and play the piano and be the most spectacularly entertaining thing you've ever seen for, you know, for, for one song after another. Oh, what a shame there isn't a, you know, 90-minute Chico concert somewhere that we can watch. Mm. And maybe the Chico Marx Orchestra, which I've always thought of as this weird footnote at the end, this thing he had to do because all together now Chico needed the money, you know, uh, oh, maybe the Chico Marx Orchestra and all the time he spent in front of audiences during those years was just as important a part of the body of work of Chico Marx as anything we're familiar with. Yeah, and she also says in that passage that you've just quoted, um, 
Daddy once explained to me that the reason Harpo and Groucho relied so heavily on him was that in any three scene, Groucho had to channel his remarks through Chico to Harpo, and Chico had to interpret Harpo to Groucho. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a point that uh, other writers and thinkers have made, you know, that there aren't a lot of Groucho-Harpo scenes, you know, um, and that it's it's Groucho and Chico most of the time, or Harpo and Chico, um, and that Chico had an offstage role that was a- as important as anybody's onstage role. But uh, but Maxine's insights here are are special and I feel as though this book has been too often and too easily dismissed, but maybe I only think that because I personally have <laughs> too often and too easily dismissed <laughs> it. Maybe others have been much more fair to it. But uh, but if you haven't, I, I would certainly encourage our listeners to sit down with this book and just <laughs> listen to Maxine's voice for a while. Um, there's an interesting section where in the period between Paramount and MGM – Irving Thalberg hasn't come along yet, and it's one of these, what are we going to do next? Do the Marx Brothers have a future or not kind of moments? And Maxine sort of transcribes a conversation between Harpo and Chico, where they're talking on the phone sort of about where the act is right now and what might happen next. And it's so vividly written. It's such a nice piece of dialogue. It's like barely one page long, but it's just a phone conversation between Harpo and Chico. Uh, But reading it, it feels so real. And it feels like, okay, Maxine really knows what their voices sounded like and what kinds of things they said to each other. And it just seemed like, oh, I wish we had more of this. What would it have been like? Here's an interesting what if to go with some of the what ifs you raised at the beginning of this episode. What if Maxine and not Arthur had been the kind of writer of that generation of Marx children? And, you know, what if Maxine had tried to write Minnie's Boys or had tried to write a, a piece that explored the Marx Brothers relationships in real life? Uh, this this dialogue she gives Harpo and Chico just feels so real and authentic in a way that, uh, f- frankly, nothing in in Minnie's Boys does, or or in uh, uh, Arthur's books about Groucho, which of course have their their great value and merits. But I, I kind of wish Maxine had written more. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because you do get the feeling as well, don't you, that she is romping through the book. That that it it could have been three times the length and still been been fascinating. Uh, she you know she she glides over things uh, very quickly, and you and you sometimes want her to just slow down a little because that, that was that was very, very interesting what you said there. You know, um, if I was if I was editing the book, I think I would have I would have told her to 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 do that. Um, a good case in point, in fact, being the the next section of the book when they uh, when they move to Hollywood. There are some very vivid uh, kind of pencil sketches of, of Hollywood lifestyle and the Hollywood community. There's some great stuff about um, uh, George Kaufman and, and uh, Moss Hart. Um, there's some some amusing anecdotes that I that I didn't remember seeing anywhere else. They may be uh, like, for instance. Um, Chico having a habit of stealing money from Sam Wood's wallet. Yes. Which <laughs> is quite, quite good. Uh, but also, um, reading her take on the extremely well-known uh, and widely told story of of Chico swinging the, the Thalberg deal, um, you... Or I rather got the feeling that it that it started to make some sense uh, about his billing change, 
that you, that you could almost you you could see that being part of that deal that that he read because she talks about them getting um, percentage points up front and and various other perks that they didn't have before and you could you can easily imagine him uh, you know doing that um, and in and, and in fact. Um, there was um, a post in our Facebook group quite recently from, I, I, I'm reasonably sure, from Eddie Deason, where he was talking about uh, the, the, the mystery of, the, of, uh, of Chico jumping up to, to second place and suggesting that maybe uh, Betty uh, might have been, you know, the, the voice in his ear prompting that. Um, and I thought, you know, yeah, it's quite an interesting sort of suggestion, but but didn't take it any further but there is this interesting passage isn't there about uh betty telling chico that um uh in all your every time you have a good gag the camera's on groucho he's always upstaging you you can't be funny if they can't see you um next time you have a story conference assert yourself more so we do actually get uh, an anecdote about betty um kind of compelling him to not be laid back and to to put his best interests uh you know to to the fore which which i think kind of supports um the idea that eddie deason had there yes indeed it's very interesting and and the outcome of that is interesting too with chico coming back to betty and telling her you know groucho and harpo need the spotlight i just need the act to be good um, yeah. basically saying they need to feel good about our work. I need a paycheck. Uh, yeah, really very interesting. And um, Betty being defensive of Chico's role kind of makes you feel like Maxine inherited that responsibility from her mother in some ways, you know, um, like, okay, Chico's, Chico's life is about um, being his own champion on other points besides like being an important comedian. Uh, that's not actually what matters to Chico. Uh, it's a means to an end. Uh, so we're going to have to be the ones to argue that that Chico Marx is a great comedian and is um, n- no less important a member of the Marx Brothers. Also, the important point that Chico and Betty and Irving Thalberg and Norma Shearer were all friends, you know, that like Chico did have a closer personal friendship with Irving Thalberg than the other brothers did. It wasn't just that they were both card players and therefore they happened to have a conversation over a card game. Um, on the other hand, Maxine does give Chico the paramount Adolf Zucker story, you're the one showman in the world, and all that, which we generally think that was actually Zeppo who made that deal and, and not Chico. Um, so there's at least that one example. There's also, um, as well, I mean, she does say, doesn't she, at one point, that they, they, the brothers had a tendency to kind of share out these stories. And, yes. and you know, one, one time it would be Harpo, and another time it would be, uh, you know, Chico, and, and so on. And we do have, uh, as well, we have um, Harpo here laying claim to the uh, story of being shown W.C. Fields' booze yes. collection in case uh, Prohibition comes back, which is normally a Groucho story, but we have Harpo doing it here, don't we? Yeah, they seem to have been just freely borrowing from each other as far as that stuff goes. Really interesting. And oddly, sometimes when a story is one way everywhere and another way in just one place, it's the different one that seems more true. Yes. (laughs) Uh, It's also interesting the way she describes this sense of the Marx Brothers as um, as a unit, a sort of unbreakable brotherly bond that was more important than anything else in the lives of each brother and what it was like to be a child in the middle of that. Um, She describes a scene sort of 
weird and difficult scene, something that should challenge the um, authors of whatever Marx Brothers biopic ever happens someday. Um, she talks about having given Chico um, a, a scolding for his irresponsibility, for his unfaithfulness to Betty and all the ways in which he was disappointing. And Harpo scolds her for it. Harpo like comes down, pulls mm. Maxine aside and says, like, don't say that about your father. Um, and Maxine writes, I look back on this incident with mixed emotions. I realize how close the Marx Brothers were. Often in their careers, they had an us-against-them attitude. Certainly, I can see how their mutual regard for one another and their devotion to the act made them intolerant of anyone else's criticism, especially coming from within the family. On the other hand, it had never occurred to Harpo to sit down and talk to me seriously about my father's gambling and women, because Harpo and his brothers were insensitive to the causes of daddy's problems. Just as Harpo treated Chico's gambling as a simple problem of willpower, so he looked on my actions as simple disloyalty. Wow. Okay. So, mm. like, yeah, the Marx Brothers has this tight unit, all for one and one for all and two for five and six for a quarter. You know, like that, we know that. We feel like that's beautiful about them. And that's one of the things that made them great. And it is. But, oh, what was it like to be the daughter? When you're a little kid, you want to mm. be the most important thing in your father's life, if not your uncle's lives, too. You don't want to feel like your father is devoted to your uncles in a way that he will never be devoted to you. That's very sad. <laughs> yes, and, and not only that, but but devoted to 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 two uncles who were frequently, um, you know, very very harsh with him. She also says, doesn't she? Um, Neither of his brothers seemed to understand that Chico's incessant gambling was a sickness. Harpo was particularly unsympathetic. Yeah, I think that makes sense, doesn't it? That jibes with all the wonderful things we know about Harpo, too. The world for Harpo was a simpler place than it was for most yes. of us. Um, he wouldn't appreciate the complexity of addiction. Harpo was uh, seemingly so free of uh, those kinds of complexities. As a side note, she does talk briefly about um, the College Bowl. The, the the TV series that uh, that Chico made um, in the 1950s, and I sat down this afternoon and watched that for uh, I think at, at most the third time in my life, maybe the second time in my life, and certainly um, with with undivided attention for the first time in my life. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Nothing happens in it. <laughs> Absolutely nothing happens in it. It's a half hour show. It was apparently the the last one of a, of a series. And absolutely nothing happens in it. And the star, Chico Marx, does virtually nothing. Yeah, I've heard um, some more recent uh, television shows and movies described as hang movies. It's a hang movie. You know, nothing happens in it. You're just kind of hanging with this set of characters for a half hour or an hour or whatever it is. Uh, College Bowl is like that. It's just kind of a hang. You're in an environment with a set of characters and it goes on for X number of minutes, and then it's over. And lots and lots of lovely uh, Chicoing, of course. Everybody calls him Chico. He, oh, yes. he says his name once on the phone, doesn't he? He says, oh, this, is a, this is a Chico Rebellion. Everybody else, it's Chico, Chico, Chico. <laughs> yes. Lovely, lovely. I, I do like to hear people saying Chico. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one thing it proves, and I think we, we 
on our episode when we talked about uh, the College Bowl and Papa Romani too, which has a different and definitely a Papa Romani has a much more much, has dramatic kind of momentum to it uh, more so than the College Bowl, but um, <laughs> they demonstrate that Chico could have been a TV star pretty easily, um, and. In this kind of setting, in a situation comedy setting, he actually would have been pretty easy to write for and represent. You know, this would not have been the greatest height of Chico as an iconoclastic comedian. Um, it wouldn't, he couldn't have done what he does in Animal Crackers on a, on a sitcom in the 1950s. But as a lovable, dialect comedian playing this avuncular character, he could have thrived on American television for decades. Um, you know, easier to write for than Groucho. Yes. Yeah. And obviously Papa Romani gives us, gives us a, a, um, a rather better kind of hint of, of where he could have gone. I mean, you can, you can imagine that having been picked up and lasting a, a season or two, couldn't you, I think? Absolutely. Just as, you know, the idea of in some alternate dimension, some other reality, Chico seemingly could have had a career as a serious character actor in, in bit parts and in, in film noirs and so forth. Yes, she does say interestingly here, doesn't she, that that, that play he's in uh, towards the end of his life, um, she's, she says, he's, you know, he, he, it was a real kind of step out of his, uh, his comfort zone. Yes. Uh, you know, and, 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 and he, he rose to the challenge, even though he was quite ill by then and, and you know, not, not reliable in any way. He actually took a risk and, and, uh, and was, it was a, a complete, um, it was a vindication for him. Yeah, that's the fifth season, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So it, again, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm coming back to the I'm coming back to uh, to Chico at at, at at Carnegie Hall, but you can you can you can imagine rather than uh, you know Groucho there singing hello i must be going with a with a stand in dumont you can you can you can almost see him with a stand in groucho doing um you know his rates for for not rehearsing to uh, sycophantic applause well chico what do you usually charge for playing well for playing 10 dollars an hour well what do you charge for not playing 20 dollars an hour <laughs> well what do you charge for rehearsing 30 dollars an hour now, wait a minute, Chico. What do you charge for not rehearsing? Oh, that runs into money. Now, look, Chico. How much will it cost if you don't rehearse and if you don't play? Oh, you couldn't afford it. Well, what would you charge to drop into an open manhole? Just for copper charge. Why don't you drop in sometime? Sure. That cleans that up pretty good, eh? You know, he has enough stuff that is his to, to make that a permissible fantasy, I think. Absolutely. And also an aspect of his performance, his piano playing, uh, I would think was a talent of his that did not age. You know, I mean, mm. it, it, Chico didn't get to be as old a man as Groucho did, of course. But, you know, if we could have had a, a Chico at a very advanced age, giving the kind of concert where the voice is quieter and slower and the wit is a little slower and not as sharp and you're kind of reconciling um the the aged figure in front of you with his more energetic youthful cinematic self 
But as soon as he starts playing the piano, it's going to sound like it always did, you know, like that part of his voice, um, as long as his the dexterity in his fingers was with him, and apparently it was right to the end, uh, always would have been there. I mean, um, imagine if Groucho had a talent like that, that would show no signs of age. Mm. Well, the rest of the book is kind of a, a two-hander, isn't it? She talks about her own um, kind of um, early breaking away from the family and her, her um, attempts to become an actress. And then she goes on to talk about meeting the, the person who, who becomes her husband. Uh, quite an amusing story about her pretending to be French. Yes. And contrast and contrasted with that and, and kind of laced through it is, are the, the, you know, the, the final years of Chico and... and uh, in, first of all, the, the final years of his of his first marriage, and I'd often wondered if if there was a particular because it seemed to have just rubbed along for so long, uh, being unsatisfying to both of them. I, I'd often wondered if there was a particular catalyst to to the, cause the you know the the irrevocable end of it. Uh, and she says that there, that there was, and what's more, she she blames herself for for um, for causing it. Yes, that uh, Chico finally crossed the line that, as far as Betty knew, he hadn't yet crossed, which was to uh, make moves toward another woman under their own roof, a, a friend of Maxine's. I mean, this is a, a, one of the more egregious things a father can do, which is make <laughs> sexual advances uh, toward your daughter's friend uh, while she's at your house. Uh, supposedly to spend time with your daughter. Uh, so that's obviously a, an ex- extremely crummy thing to do. And for Betty, the last straw, it seems to have been something that Betty had made known. This is something I will not accept. I'll put up with a lot from you, Chico Marx, but not that. And I think Betty got to the point where just as a matter of personal pride, she could no longer uh, roll over uh, in, in the face of this kind of treatment. We then get to find out a little bit about about Mary, uh, Chico's um, second wife. Um, it's good to to have some some color uh, filled into that fairly unknown part of the story. Um, and also, I think Maxine here is notably uh, generous towards her. Uh, you could easily imagine her just having a, a, a very negative um, portrait of a, portrait of her, but she but she's not. It's it's very generous and. Uh, she she says good things about her, doesn't she? She does, yeah. And she seems to just have recognized, as as many people in that situation have, you know, that if I want to have a relationship with this person who's one of the most important people in my life, my father, then I also am going to have to accept and have a relationship with the person he's chosen as a partner, even if the circumstances under which their relationship began, uh, you know, were difficult for my household and and family life. Uh, It's the kind of like that kind of personal maturity from Maxine that's refreshing to hear, you know, from anybody in this saga. (laughs) I also just want to, this is an absolute sidebar, but it was to me one of the really amusing, heartwarming details of the book. I'm reminded of it because you reference her her anecdote about meeting her husband, um, Seamus Culhane, and, and, having pretended to be French during their original introduction. So Maxine could speak a little French and had studied French, and Chico is very proud of his daughter for for knowing French, or at least being somewhat fluent in French, so that whenever they met anyone French, Chico apparently would... <laughs> 
push Maxine toward that person and say, talk French. <laughs> they run into Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer at the studio. <laughs> talk French, Chico said, pushing me forward. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I mean, that is just okay. Now I have a picture of Chico Marx as a father. Hey, kid, talk French. <laughs> Another story like that that comes in the book that is just so vivid to me. It just makes Chico so real. <laughs> she's talking about this another time when he's in London. He's spending time in England. Uh, Maxine writes, uh, Chico and the Duke of Manchester had become bridge buddies, and Chico and Betty had been guests at his castle. But, Chico added, those people were kind of boring. I guess the life of cucumber sandwiches and tea hadn't awed the brothers much. What did you say to the Duke, Daddy? I asked, thinking of court protocol. Hiya, Duke, he replied in his best New Yorkies. (laughs) And there's another very good embarrassing dad story, isn't there, where she talks about uh, having um, a crush on um, Spencer Tracy and um, getting to the point where she considered um, actually writing a a note to him, uh, you know, saying that that she she has sort of serious feelings for him, but... uh, if, if she um, she sees him with <laughs> with Chico and Chico kind of shouts across across the studio lot, doesn't he? Hey, my daughter's got a crush on you, <laughs> and he comes over and pats her head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a pat on the head. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's so good to have those kind of anecdotes. Like, you know, for every anecdote about Chico being monstrous or at least frustratingly selfish um there are these great funny anecdotes about him that you can't find anywhere else and as he as he he moves uh fairly swiftly then towards his his death there are there are two nice um touches uh one is uh she she again uh very generously makes the point that that mary uh who could have cut her losses uh in fact stood by him and was extremely supportive and helpful as he as he became very ill um but there's also a a a fabulous scene isn't there where she where he's in a hospital having had a major heart attack and she goes into his hospital room and groucho and harpo are already in there um and and they start um telling her an anecdote um kind of almost almost like a performance where the three of them you know will will pick up the thread and say a bit and then one of the others will do a bit and harpo acts out some of it physically and and she says you know chico kind of lost 10 years of of age and illness as they as they were doing this um you know i mean that is a that is a ready-made biopic last scene isn't it yeah and absolutely no doubt about it so there we are then, Growing Up with Chico by Maxine Marks. And I think we would both say to anyone who either hasn't read it at all or hasn't read it for a while, um, it's well worth taking off your shelf and, and having another shifty at it. And it is still to this day the only book about Chico Marx. Only, you know, that is that centers Chico Marx, we'll say. All of the Marx Brothers books are about Chico Marx in some way. And we know that... Uh, Coming pretty soon, there will at long last be a Zeppo book, um, Robert Bader's biography uh, we're all waiting for eagerly. Um, But uh, this is still the only book about Chico and um, the only book we'll ever have from uh, a a child of Chico. Uh, Well worth reading. And I think um, 
uh, I'm not sure exactly what my official ranking is of Marx Brothers books, and uh, I'm personally friendly with too many authors of Marx Brothers books to ever <laughs> make that ranking public. Um, but I think uh, after this reading of Growing Up with Chico, uh, wherever I would rank this book, it's risen several notches um, in my estimation and um, in my private ranking of Marx Brothers books. Uh, uh, Growing Up with Chico is... Uh, much higher on the list than uh, than I had thought it was. And I concur. So before we go, uh, do you have a Patreon update for us? I do. We are just rolling along with Patreon. Uh, we want to welcome and thank all of our recent subscribers, and we have had a spike in subscribers. Uh, some of the exciting things we've been through recently, I think, have... Uh, drawn more uh, more people to the podcast and the Patreon. I'm talking about our big contest uh, at the end of last year uh, where we gave away a Coconuts poster signed by the real Groucho Marx. Um, and also our last episode, which was a big one with Mike Rowe and the virtually unheard audio of Groucho's interview with Raymond Rohauer in 1967. That's in our previous episode for any listeners who might have missed it. Um, and many have climbed on board, I think, as a result of these uh, exciting developments. And, of course, the bonus segment last uh, last month, uh, which also featured uh, our guest, Mr. Mike Rowe, and some Groucho video that very few uh, of the fans have seen before. Just a reminder, when you subscribe to our Patreon at any level, you instantly get access to our bonus segments, including all of the past bonus segments, which means if you join right now, you will have over a year's worth of monthly extra bonus segments. It's like getting hours of additional podcast content <laughs> right away. And just think of how much of your life you can waste listening to us talk about the Marx Brothers. <laughs> postcard number 14, uh, the February postcard, is sitting right here on my desk as we record this. As you listen to it, the postcard will already be flying through the mail to your mailbox if you are a subscriber at one of the top four levels. If you become a subscriber right now, we will send you this postcard and also the last few postcards, so you'll get a little bonus in the postcard department, too. Uh, and this February postcard, after uh, some wonderful guest entries lately, has a design by me. Apologize for that. We'll have a good artist back soon to do something good. <laughs> okay, so now it's time for our final song. And uh, in a way, um, I guess my choice is, is quite self-explanatory, um, but I do feel compelled to explain it. Um, two nights ago, I actually dreamed that we were recording this podcast. Uh, and for some reason, in my dream, I chose to end it with a song that I don't think I've heard or even thought about in over 40 years. But my dream self chose it as the final song. Uh, now, obviously, that seemed perfectly normal in the dream, as, as weird things in dreams always do. Uh, but when I woke, I was much amused by uh, the, the inexplicable absurdity of it. Um, but the damage was done, and so I have decided to end with it for real. Um, partly because it provides me with my final Chico what-if. 
Uh, what if Chico had lived into the age of the novelty comedy pop single? Uh, if he had, it's no stretch at all to picture him uh, risking tarnishing his legacy with something exactly like this. So here is a song that was a worldwide hit back in 1981 and which topped the British pop charts for three consecutive weeks. It's Joe Dolce with... Shut up your face. <laughs> Hello, I'm a Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno, due, tre, quattro. When I was a boy, just about the eighth grade, Mama used to say, Don't stay out late with the bad boys. Always shoot the pool, Giuseppe, going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick. I always got to follow rules Boy, it making me sick Just to make the lousy bucks Got to feel like a fool And the mama used to say all the time What's the matter you? Hey, got no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face That's my mama, can I remember? Big accordion solo Star. Then they make a TV shows and the movies Get myself a new car But still I be myself I don't want it to change a thing Still a dance and a sing I think about the mama, she used to say What's the matter you? Hey, God, no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face Mama, she said it all of the time What's the matter you, hey, got no respect What do you think you do, why you look so sad It's a not so bad, it's a nicer place I shut up your face That's my mom Hello everybody, that's out there on the radio on the TV land Did you know I had a big hit the song in Italy with this? Shut up your face I sing this song, all of my fans applaud, they clap their hands That's making me feel so good. You ought to learn that this is a song. It's a real simple. See, I sing, what's the matter you? You sing, hey. Then I sing it the rest. And then at the end, we can all sing, ah, shut up with your face. Okay, let's try it really bit. Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. 
Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! I was very amused to read in Maxine's interesting description of her maternal grandmother's funeral. She's writing about her grandmother, Betty Carp's mother, Grandma Carp, and what she has to say about this woman who was, as Maxine characterizes her, completely lost the day she left the Russian shtetl village where she was from um, and barely spoke English and was suddenly in this world of Hollywood and show business and, and wealth and everything. Anyway, in her description of Grandma Carp's funeral, Maxine mentions that Harpo and Chico were impossible because, for some reason, whenever they heard Hebrew spoken, it made them laugh. Throughout the service, they made faces at each other and at the rabbi, trying to break each other up. Groucho, who wasn't as close to Grandma Carp as his brothers, was the only one to behave with proper respect. Uh, boy, I that really rang a bell with me. I've been there, that world where you're <laughs> you're Jewish enough to be uh, at a Jewish funeral, but you're not so Jewish that sometimes the sound of very serious, portentous people speaking Hebrew at key moments it just sometimes sounds funny. It can really make you laugh and. Uh, I have been, I have been that uh, that giggler trying hard to keep it together, or trying, or, or witnessing someone else in the, in the midst of that same struggle. Me too. Yeah, not not at a funeral, but at a at a, a, a Jewish wedding. Um, my, my wife's Jewish, and um, um, our, our our son Edward, who would have been about about five at the time, uh, had no idea. Of Hebrew, didn't had never encountered it, so uh, he he was he thought it was absolutely hilarious that, <laughs> that this, this incredibly kind of dignified and obviously important man kind of went to the front of this this large congregation of people and basically spoke gibberish. <laughs> he really thought it was funny. So yes, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real thing. It's especially in like. Um, liturgical settings, when it's that cantorial, very heavy, very portentous uh, sound. It's not just someone chattering away in a foreign language, but it's uh, it just sounds so dramatic and, <laughs> and so serious, and that's why it seems so funny. There's actually a few good um, funeral stories in the book, isn't there? Not least um, Chico's own funeral. Where it's, it's a lovely detail where she tells the rabbi to say that he was the, the least malicious of men. And he says that he was the least mischievous of men. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and Groucho and Harpo coming out of Chico's funeral kind of angry at the eulogy. Yes. Groucho saying, I should have done it myself. And um, it's interesting. Uh, like... Uh, on one hand, I'm sure that's all true. It does sound like that was a, a strange way to commemorate Chico Marx. On the other hand, at this like 
very dark moment for them personally and as a professional comedy team. Like, here we are without any ability to bring the Marx Brothers back ever again now. There's no more Chico. Um, there's no more act. And what Groucho and Harpo involve themselves with is an adamant bad review of the rabbi's eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> something sweet about that. <laughs> 